<laughs> wow. Anybody else here dealing with a cold or anything right now? Like, okay, you're afraid to raise your hands because people will, will move. <laughs> Anybody here get more than three hours of sleep last night? Not, not me. Those of you with kids are like, pfft, amateur. But I'm doing the best I can to get through this. You might see me drink. There's tea in there. Uh, to get through this, but hey, welcome everybody. I want to I want to start out uh, this message. First of all, welcome out there online. I see a few new visitors. Um, I see a few friends that have been here a couple times. So glad to see you guys back. Um, normally, I would say I'll hang out afterwards. Please come talk to me, but I don't want to give you a gift. So um, please come talk to someone because it does matter that you're here, and we're so thankful that you're here. Um, we're in Battle for the Blessing. It's a study on Ezra and Nehemiah. And the way that I normally start this out is I talk about how we have to contend every day for God's blessings. God's blessings are all over in Scripture, His promises, uh, and He's so good to us. But we do have to contend for that. It's not like it just shows up on your doorstep and nobody's after it. Nobody's trying to steal it. There's nothing that ever goes wrong with it. It happens all the time, and, and our human nature tendency is when we have to struggle, when we have to fight to hold on to that blessing that we're just so certain that God gave us, we have to struggle to hang on to it, and then we start thinking, did I get it wrong? Am I doing something wrong? What's happening here? Because it's God's blessing, right? It's supposed to be easy. That's not the way it works. There's somebody who's always after our blessing always wants to steal, twist, pervert, and make us ultimately give up that blessing that God gave us. And where I'm going in the scripture today, we're actually going to jump into, into Ezra pretty deeply here today. Um, so, so buckle up and hold on. I hope you have your Bibles ready. Um, but it dovetails so nicely into what uh, you were just hearing, what Zach and Colleen were saying from up here on stage We'll talk about it at the, at, the, at the end. Prophecy in, in ancient times was so incredibly important. It allowed the Hebrew people to have something to hold on to. When they were being, being beat up and displaced and everything in the world was happening to them, and they, they literally had a roller coaster ride through their entire history, even up until today. But that prophecy spoken thousands of years ago is able to help them hold on and go forward with confidence even when things don't look good. Well, today, through Jesus, we have access to that prophecy. We are able to hear from the Holy Spirit, and we are able to, to speak what, what the Holy Spirit tells us, sometimes just for us and sometimes for others. If you're not familiar with how to discern and how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life and then what to do with that once I hear it, I really want to urge you to take that class. The, the class that they're doing is just to kind of dip your toe in. I know it's eight weeks, but it's kind of just dip your toe in the water and find out what it's all about. And then we have the way, if it strikes you as something you need to pursue, you can go further and take Jackie's full class series then. But if you've never taken the time just to still your heart and just listen to the Holy Spirit, you're missing out on on the hugest part of what Jesus gave himself to give us. 
Personal salvation is wonderful. I don't want to diminish that idea of personal salvation, eternal life with him in heaven. But the ability to have constant connection, constant fellowship with the Holy Spirit that will literally guide you through every single thing that you do in your life. That is something that you can use every minute of every day. You don't have to wait until you get there. It's here and it's now. And if you don't have a connection and you don't have an understanding, I want you just to, just to pray about it as we talk and see if that is something that you should pursue. But let's get into it because I have got a lot of scriptures I'll warn you today. Some I'll read to you. Um, some will be up on the screen. I use the NASB, which is New American Standard. It's just the one I teach out of. So if I'm, if I'm putting scripture up or quoting, you have a different version. It might read slightly different. Uh, and that's okay. Some, sometimes a different version just phrases it a little bit differently. So let's get into it. Recap. Last week, we laid a little bit more groundwork for just understanding the significance of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And again, a quick reminder, they were most likely, most scholars believe, written by the same person. The, the scribe Ezra actually wrote both of them. Also, Chronicles, um, some people think even Esther that he wrote. But let's jump into that. He talked about, or we talked about last week, this series of covenant promises that God made with his people. Um, and we saw how those covenants uh, that God made with, with Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Moses um, were so significant. And God moved heaven and earth to make sure that those promises were kept. No matter what the world was doing around him, no matter the decisions or choices that people made, he made certain that those covenant promises that he made were going to happen. And of course, they all point to the new covenant that Jesus Christ offers everyone. We talked about how God uses prophets to issue um, not only promises, but also warnings and corrections. They had to be kept on course. Our human nature is we will go off course. The second you give us a direction, such as speaking to somebody and then going, okay, all I have to do is call them up on stage, and then you forget. Who else here does that? Anybody? It's just us? Okay, yeah. We all do that. So we all need correction. We all need reminders. We all need to just stay on course. I said this last week, but it bears repeating again. Um, there's, a, there's an expert in biblical prophecy in, a, in a, um, an area of study called apologetics. Um, Terry, Terry Cooper's here. Right? I saw him come in. There, there he is. You'll like this. It's Hugh Ross. He, he's, a, he's the leader of the Hugh Ross fan club, I think. But according to Hugh Ross, there are about 2,500 prophecies and promises in Scripture. 2,500, and that's throughout the entirety of the Bible, Old and New Testaments. And of the prophecies that were to have been fulfilled as of today, this time, all of them have been fulfilled exactly the way that Scripture describes. Now, there's about 500 left or so um, that are in our future, yet to be fulfilled. But if you look at 2,500, 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled exactly. Does that give you confidence that he can handle the other 500? 
Amen. It does me too. And that's what we're talking about here. This story that we're talking about, this, this um, I mean, a story is, a, it's an epic story. It's a saga um, about what happens to God's people in this time. It's just one example of God's promises being true. We are going to hit scripture from all over the place that just points to how amazing it is when God takes everything and works it together. God's not limited by a timeline. If you look and go, well, I don't see it happening today, he's not limited by our timelines. He will use centuries sometimes to weave things together and to make it what he needs it to be. So we're going to talk about it. Let's jump right into the scripture today. Ezra, we're in Ezra chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 1 and 2. That's it. And that's going to be enough. Trust me, when it's over, you'll go, please stop. <clears throat> but there's so much happening here. There's so much. Let me read it to you. Actually, we'll put it on screen. Follow along with me or just read it uh, with you. Ezra 1, 1 and 2. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to rebuild for him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. All right, that's the entirety of the two verses. We're going to tear it apart here in just a second. But there's so much happening right there. You, you can't go two words without going like, okay, stop, we need to... We need to look at that. Side note, this is, those of you who like to study Scripture in the Bible, this section, verses 1 and 2, is identical to the last couple verses in Second Chronicles. If you look at that, it's, it is identical. It's a historical fact. It's verified by not only other Scriptures in the Bible, and you'll see how they tie together in a way that no man could possibly manufacture. But outside sources, outside historians, all these things that we're going to talk about here are verified fact. So let's get into it. It is so amazing how the whole Bible, all scripture ties together like this intricate piece of art that you could never see in its individual pieces. It's like a, I've seen it, heard it described as a watch. You take a watch apart, a fine watch, a Rolex. You take it apart to all its individual pieces. And separately, they don't look like much. But you put them together and they accomplish something that's amazing. And, and Scripture is like that. So before we go any further, let's look just a little bit closer at who Ezra was, right? Since he's, he's written all these books and he's the, kind of the basis for what we're studying. Here's this image that I had of Ezra. There it is. Now... Not an actual picture, full disclosure, but, and leave this up here for a few minutes, guys. This picture, um, it's, it's really the only one that was commonly found for Ezra, and, and a lot of different sources use that when they're saying who Ezra is, and I think it's more accurate than you might think when you just glance at it, and we'll talk about why. Ezra 7.10, this is his own book, chapter 7, verse 10, so we'll get to this chapter later. But it says, Ezra had firmly resolved to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. 
So chapter 7 takes place after Ezra actually returns back to Israel, uh, back to Jerusalem, that is. Um, but you see here, he's, he's teaching. He's got the statutes, the ordinances, the law, in other words. That looks like one of the tablets that Moses would give, right? And he's, he's not only studied it, but he's teaching that in the town square, everywhere he can go. His job is to make sure that people understand the statutes and the ordinances that were given down to Moses. That's what he's doing. And so that's, that's a pretty accurate description. He also would have been a pretty old man at this time. So that, again, is another... Another good description. We'll leave that up there for a couple minutes till we get to our next scripture. Ezra himself is not really known as a prophet. Not commonly described as a prophet, although his book kind of falls in that, in that category. He's not really known as that. Um, he's a teacher. He's a leader. And they call him the scribe a lot. Scribe is just someone who writes down on the scrolls. That's kind of his job. He was born in Babylon. So he wasn't born in Jerusalem and taken into captivity. He was born in captivity in Babylon to some parents who were also born in Babylon and were pretty well connected. His parents, his family was a pretty well-to-do family they had status. They came from a family, a whole line of Jewish priests going all the way back. They could trace their lineage. They were direct descendants of Aaron. So they had, their family just generally had some status. And so then Ezra, as kind of the, the spokesman, the, the elder of the family at that time, he had a little bit of pull also. Now think about this. It had been, in, in the timeline, if you look at it, it had been almost 60 years since Cyrus, that we'll, that we'll talk about, issued his decree and sent Zerubbabel back to Israel. In other words, he was freed, and his family, they were free to go. But they didn't go. They stayed there in Babylon. They had, and there were about 42,000 uh, Jews that were estimated to have left when Cyrus issued his decree saying you can go back and, and rebuild. About 42,000 left, but the vast majority stayed. Stayed in Babylon where they had been in slavery because they had built lives. They had built businesses. They had built friends. They had started building status in their, in their own thing. And, and most of them weren't anxious to leave. They literally stayed there. So that's where it is. It's been about 60 years that he could have left and his family could have left, but they didn't. He stayed behind. He had a job to do, and it wasn't time. So Ezra was born, actually, in Babylon under the rule of um, one of the last Babylonian rulers. His name was Xerxes. Anybody heard of him? If he, if, depending on your um, translation, uh, it's often described. Xerxes is his Greek name. Um, his, his Hebrew name, or, or uh, Persian name, is, is Asherus, something like that. You'll, you'll see it like that. Uh, I haven't had enough sleep to try and pronounce that. But if you see it listed a different way, that's what it is. Xerxes is actually his, his Greek name. But I'm going to take you on one of those. Remember I talked to you about these little hyperlink kind of rabbit trails that we're going to jump around on? I'm going to take you on one 
right now. When we talk about Xerxes, again, Ezra was born under the rule of Xerxes. Xerxes was also a main character in what other book of Scripture? Esther. Very good. I heard somebody say it. Excellent. Main character in the book of Esther, along with uh, Esther, of course, Mordecai, Haman. If you haven't read the book of Esther, it's an incredible story. It's an incredible story. But Ezra was born right after the events that we see in the book of Esther take place. Right after that is when he was born. So if you're looking for another example of God's faithfulness, a lot of people kind of discount the book of Esther um, because it's not deeply theological. It just kind of tells a story about the things that happened. But if all of those things, and it reads, if you want something just fun to read, read Esther, because it reads like a soap opera. It really does. Um, But if the things that happened, the things that God and his faithfulness wove together to make the events in the book of Esther happen, in other words, Haman's plot, Haman was the bad guy, the villain in that book, and he had a plot to literally exterminate all of the Jews, all of them, just wipe them out. And had that succeeded, Ezra and Nehemiah would never even have been born. So all this rebuilding of the temple, this rebuilding of the walls would have had to been done a different way. Because again, God's going to accomplish his will. But it all ties in together. God intervened in that story of Esther to ensure that his plans and his promises were going to be fulfilled. Everywhere you look in Scripture is just examples of God's faithfulness and making things work that seem completely disconnected. You read Esther and it just seems like, oh, the bad guys are running rampant and nobody cares and all this. And yet, you can see God's hand in all of it, making sure that all of it happens just like it's supposed to, to accomplish what needs to happen. So it's back to Ezra. Since his family was so well connected, he was given this prestigious job um, as, you call him a commissioner for the Persian government. He had an actual role in the Persian government as a Jew, he did. His official job title is called Scribe of the Law of the God of Heaven. How'd you love that to be your job title? That sounds like a cool job title. It's hard to fit on a business card, especially if you're carving it out. One historian described it a little bit more accurately as the royal secretary for Jewish religious affairs. That's kind of what he was. That was, that was his job. His job was to be a liaison between the Persian government and the Jewish people. <coughs> Excuse me. See, the Persian Empire was a conquering empire. They, they conquered people all over the place. And rather than to go in and just say, okay, you need to convert to our religion, our way of life, or die, they said, hey, come along, bring your, bring your religion, bring your way of life, and we'll tolerate that. And then we'll elect somebody or appoint somebody over all you people to be our liaison. It was genius on their part. It allowed those people to continue to practice their religion as long as they stayed down low and not, not get out of control. They had their spokesman, their one person that they could talk to, and that's, and that's who Ezra was. 
So he spent most of his days, he was able to literally spend most of his days studying the Torah in depth. That's what he did. And he studied under some of the most respected Jewish leaders in Babylon, some, some disciples of Jeremiah directly. Um, he, learned, he learned a lot, and he learned it well. And this position, though, also gave him access to royal archives and information that no one else would have. He could literally get in there, and we'll see when we get into chapters later. One of the chapters I told you we'd skip is the one that's all lineage and genealogy. We'll skip that one because there's not a whole lot of theology there, but it's important to know the only reason he can even know that is because he has access to all of their archives, and he can look through all that. In other words, at this time, he was in no particular hurry to flee Babylon and go to this place in Jerusalem, which he never even knew. It'd be like somebody telling you, well, you were born and you were raised here, but your family's from Ohio. You should just pick up and move to Ohio. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But Ezra was in no particular hurry to do that. At least not yet. God had other plans, and the time wasn't right for Ezra. So he stayed there, he stayed behind, and he did what God called him to do. So now, okay, let's pick up a little background. Let's dig into then chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1 and dig in. Ezra 1, I called it 1A because we're just going to split that verse 1 into a few different pieces and talk about it. Ezra 1, 1A. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. All right, this was 559 B.C., Remember when you're talking about B.C., the numbers work backwards. They get smaller as you get, as you get closer to Jesus. Cyrus wouldn't conquer Babylon for another 20 years. Okay, so it was, it was a while. The next verse, 1b, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. This is where it gets good. So stay with me on this. There's a lot. Jeremiah was a well-known prophet of God. He was a big deal already at this time, well-known. And he fled Judah all the way back right before the Babylonians conquered Judah in 586 B.C. Babylonians' army was, was marching on Judah, and, and his family, Jeremiah's family, said, okay, let's, let's flee to Egypt. Let's get out of here. Let's go to Egypt. So they did. They fled, and they went to Egypt. But before he did that. But before he did that, right before leaving, he speaks these words, these prophetic words he speaks to the people in Judah. Jeremiah 25, verses 8 and 9. I'll read these to you. Therefore, remember, there's, a, there's a, a, an army that's going to come and advance on them and attack them. They're not in the middle of an active battle yet, but they can feel the rumblings coming. Jeremiah 25, 8 and 9. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says. Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord. And I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and hissing and everlasting place of ruins. Wow. Now remember, this is Jeremiah, one of, their, one of their hometown prophets, standing up in the town square saying, the Lord's telling me, because you have disobeyed, he's sending Nebuchadnezzar. 
to discipline you. Would that make him super popular? <laughs> I'd probably clean out your party really quick. But he continues. He goes on. Verse 12. Then it will be when 70 years are completed. Again, these are the words of the Lord through Jeremiah. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their wrongdoing in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Okay, so follow me here. He's saying, the Lord is telling me he's going to come and punish you, and he's going to use Babylon to do it. Nebuchadnezzar by name to do it. But after 70 years, when you've had enough, I'll punish Babylon because they're not good either. And then he goes on in this, verse 10, Jeremiah 29, 10. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Followed immediately by this. Listen to that. You've probably heard this verse before. Maybe the only one you've heard in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for prosperity and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Think about that for a minute. Jeremiah spoke these words of warning to Judah before they were attacked. Words that were largely ignored. And God brought correction to them in the form of the Babylon, Babylonian army. But before he did that, he had Jeremiah not only speak these words of warning, like, this is coming, but God is good. God knows what he has for you. And this, all these things that are about to happen to you, have a finite time frame, and he's using them for your good. That'd be a hard one to grasp, wouldn't it? God's going to bring you through some things. Now, the Babylonian army didn't pull up in buses and say, hey, get on the buses and come with us. We'll drive you to Babylon. It was a battle. It was a war. People died. Things got destroyed. It was incredible, and it was ugly. But in the middle of that, Jeremiah is saying, but God knows the plans he has for you. He told me, this is all for your good, and he'll bring you back to this place. So even in the midst of like, you're about to be punished. But trust him. It's for a reason and it's going to be good. It's so much to wrap your mind around. But think about that. Even when God allows you to reap the consequences of your actions, he still has a plan to restore you. Every time. That plan's got a name and it's Jesus Christ. And that's who we celebrate here. So going on, God uses Cyrus just exactly as he promised. Ezra 1, this is the verse 1c. 1c. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and it goes on, we'll talk more about that later. But how did the Lord stir up the spirit of Cyrus? This is Cyrus, king of Persia. There is nobody that can tell him what to do. How did the Lord do that? Anybody know? He uses a prophet. Anybody know that prophet's name? Daniel. He uses this prophet named Daniel. Daniel was taken captive in the, in the first, first wave from his home in Judah as a teenager. 
He was actually, of all the people in the story, he's one of the few that had actually seen the temple and Jerusalem and, and everything in its glory. He's one of the few who had actually seen that. And he was taken away as a teenager, taken captive to Babylon. He served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar until the Persians then conquered Babylon. But Daniel, when that happened, when the Persians came in and conquered Babylon, kicked out Nebuchadnezzar and did all that, Daniel had some pretty serious street cred. Remember the story of the lion's den? Read that if you don't know about it. In addition to all the prophetic words and everything else, um, he had the ear of Cyrus because of that. He was someone to be taken seriously. So in the third year of Cyrus's rule, so the Babylonians are gone, now it's the Persians, Cyrus, Cyrus is there. Daniel has this vision, and this is what it is. Daniel 10, verses 7 through 9. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. What do you think that vision is? It's an angel. We're going to see that in just a minute, an angel of the Lord. While the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great fear fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. They didn't see anything, but they sensed something. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my complexion turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face on the ground." Now, listen to these next two verses I'm going to read you. It's, a, it's an incredible lesson on the power of prayer and an incredible lesson on the power of spiritual warfare. Daniel 10, 12. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Excuse me. Think about that for just a moment. This is an angel coming down to tell Daniel, your words have been heard, and I'm here in response to your prayers. Ah, that's hot. Okay. Now, that's incredible enough. Listen to this, Daniel 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing in my way for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. This isn't, there's no prince of the kingdom of Persia, okay? There is only Cyrus. That's a demon. This is the demon prince that covers Persia. Then behold, Michael, who's Michael? The archangel Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help this angel. For I've been left there to do battle. That tells you a little bit, and we won't go into that today, but there is a hierarchy of angels. And we know know all about that through all of Scripture. That is spiritual warfare going on right there. And the people probably had no idea. The angel continues and says this, verse 14. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the latter days because this vision pertains to days still in the future. Again, then the angel relays that. But the angel then, at this point, the angel departs. 
to stand shoulder to shoulder with the archangel Michael to do battle with the demons of Persia. Anybody else find this amazing? I, it's, it's incredible. The Bible is not specific now, but the ancient historian Josephus, who is a great source for a, a kind of an outside third verifying source of what Scripture tells us, he records that in addition to his own visions, Daniel speaks the prophecies of both Jeremiah and Isaiah to Cyrus. Remember the prophecy from Isaiah concerning Cyrus that we read last week? I'll read it to you again real quick. Actually, I think we have it on screen still. Isaiah 44, 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will carry out my desire. And he says of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. That's not Isaiah saying that. That's the Lord speaking through Isaiah saying, I'm gonna use Cyrus. That's 180 years before Cyrus became king. Now, if that doesn't stir up your spirit, if you're hearing this, all these prophecies, including ones that list you by name, if that doesn't stir your spirit to move, I don't know what would. But it does work, and it's exactly what Cyrus needs to hear to convince him to move just as the prophecy said. So verse 2, Ezra 1, verse 2, the first part, actually the whole thing. Let's just do the whole thing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to rebuild for him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus, king of Persia, could do anything at any time. He didn't have to do anything if he didn't want to do it. But the Lord stirred his heart. And you notice what he says, the Lord, the God of heaven. He's the king. He's the ruler, the emperor, whatever his title he wanted to be that day, of a pagan nation. They, they worship all kinds of small g gods. And they're open to all kinds of small g gods. They have no particular power or, or, um, or, or bent towards any one of them. And here, after hearing these words... He says, the God of heaven, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's acknowledging the only reason he has these kingdoms is because the Lord, and that Lord translates as Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave him to him. Pagan emperor, conquering emperor, acknowledging the only reason I have any of these things is because the Lord, the God of heaven has given them to me. And he's called me to build him a house. And so I'm going to do that for him. All right, that's it for the first two, two sections, the first two verses of Ezra. It's going to take us about three and a half years to get through this whole book now. No. We'll go faster in some places. But I hope you're following me. I, I hope you're following where I'm going with this because it is incredible. Let's put a bow on it, though. What can we use today? Scriptures, prophecies from thousands of years ago what can we use today to help us trust in God when the world seems completely off the rails? Am I the only one who thinks the world is completely off the rails? It seems like it, doesn't it? And more so every day. Every day I wake up and go, I can't even believe that they're saying this and they're serious. They're not even joking. Things that we couldn't five years ago, 10 years ago, could never have considered would possibly happen are happening today. 
But what can we learn from scripture like this that's gonna help us in a day like this? That we can go out today and we can have it help us. And then, just as importantly, maybe more importantly, where's Jesus in all this? Because I told you that all scripture points to Jesus. No matter where, no matter what scripture, no matter what it is, it all points to Jesus. Let's find Jesus in all this. The first thing I think we can use today, number one, God's promises are unfailing. They are unfailing, and it's important to remember that when things don't make sense, because things rarely make sense. Jeremiah 29, 11, again, we just read it, but it's, it bears repeating. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Now, that was directed directly towards the people of Judah. So that was a specific prophecy for those people of Judah. However, we see multiple fulfillments of prophecy happen all the time. And as we're grafted into that vine, we become recipients of those promises. And the second scripture that would, that would support God's unfailing promises, 2 Corinthians 1.10, says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And through him, amen, is spoken to us by the glory of God. That's where Christ is in this. All these things, all these promises, these plans that God has for you are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The second thing we can take away, there's always a spiritual battle going on in the heavenly realms. Always. Not only is the devil after you specifically, but there's a battle raging around us all the time. Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Xerxes, they weren't the enemies. We see clearly that they were tools of Satan. But... Luke 10, 18, 19. This is my favorite spiritual warfare scripture in, in the entire Bible. This is where we find Jesus. And he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I, Jesus, has given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Our authority in the spiritual realm is given to us through Jesus Christ. The third thing we can use, all nations, all governments, and all leaders are subject to the sovereign will of God. All of them, whether you like them, whether you don't like them. Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. Who doesn't love that? And Isaiah says this, this is where Jesus is. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. All nations, all governments, all leaders. That means 
when we sit, and I'm going to talk about it here in a second, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to politics and culture. I am not saying that. But I'm saying that our trust and our direction needs to come from God. God doesn't expect us to ignore current politics and current culture. Absolutely not, and I'm not saying that. But we need to understand that God will use each one of us to accomplish his plans if we're faithful to let him use us. And sometimes that's easier said than done. We want to take matters into our own hands. Who doesn't read a story about a a political or a social injustice and immediately go, oh, I need to go do something about that. Or in our current culture, doing something has been replaced with, I need to post something. I'm not, I'm not making fun of that necessarily. There is benefit in that. But before we get outraged over all the things that are going on and think we need to step in, take a minute. Before you post, before you talk, before you say something, go to the Holy Spirit and say, do I really need to respond to this or do you have this under control? Because the answer is, I know he's got it under control. Then your next question, do you need me to help you with this or you got this? Because I guarantee he doesn't always need all of us all of the time to weigh in on every single subject. There's a pop culture Christian wisdom out there right now that says we as Christians need to stand up, fight, and be vocal against any political tyranny. And tyranny is a grand word, maybe decision that we don't like. And perceived social injustice wherever and whenever we see it. I will tell you right now that is a false teaching. We go where the Holy Spirit tells us to go. We fight the battles the Holy Spirit tells us to fight. When we step into the ring on every single fight, we are the cause of the shrinking authority of the church worldwide. We are the ones that do that. Because the world sees us and goes, hey, I'm not a Christian and I rail against politics and everything that happens. You're a Christian and you rail against politics and do everything that happens. And, and neither one of us are doing it in a very loving way. Why are you any different? Why should I pay attention to you and what your God says that we should do? We lose our authority as a church and we have already lost the moral high ground as a church. We already have. We are to be reflections of and ambassadors of Christ in this world. And we don't do that without seeking his direction first. Otherwise, we're just a whole bunch of loose cannons going out and making the situation worse. Two scriptures, Exodus 14, 14, and then, I'm gonna, and then we're done. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. John 18, 36, Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. We need to keep that in mind. We serve a king who is not involved in the politics of this nation. He has a higher purpose. And as followers, as disciples of Christ, we have a higher purpose. And that's to follow him. Look, if the Holy Spirit tells me to fight 
I'll fight with all the strength I have. But until then, I will trust the one sovereign God. His name is Yahweh, and he's the one that gave us Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I am so I'm thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your goodness. And Lord, I repent of those times where I get impatient with the things that are happening and I take matters into my own hands. It shows that I don't trust you. It shows that I don't believe you can accomplish things. And Lord, I never want to be guilty of believing that. You are a sovereign God. All things bend their knee to you. Everything. You will use everything for your purposes. And it's only my job to be one of those things that you use for your purposes. So speak to me. Speak to me through the Holy Spirit right now. Tell me, point out to me those things that I have been doing, saying, thinking, that don't line up with what you want from me. Because I want to be the ambassador of Christ into this world. And I can't do that on my own. So guide me, use me, and give me the peace that, knows, that comes from knowing that you are sovereign, no matter what I see happening around me. Thank you, Lord, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, we're going to take communion together now. Going back and looking at all these thousands of years of history and scripture that point towards Christ should make us even more thankful that Jesus has come and given himself for us. We celebrate that by taking communion together as a body. We remember what he did for us by taking communion together as a body. So at this church, you don't have to be a member. You don't have to do anything special, but you do have to declare that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. If you can say that, we invite you to take communion with us. We have, we'll have stations up here and over here. Uh, I won't be serving today because I don't want to share this with all of you, but we'll have two stations um, that have wine up here and bread and gluten-free crackers. And the way we do it is we just dip the bread in the wine and take it like that. And in the back, we have juice and self-serve if you prefer to do it that way. But as we listen to the worship, listen to the words of the worship and just let it soak over you as we take communion together. And let's give thanks to a sovereign God. Amen. Thank you, guys.